Um, I'm going to be reading this morning from James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Taming the tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of, bo- of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Some of you have lived here long enough, pretty much all of you in this room, with the exception maybe of the Martins. I don't know when you guys arrived. I don't think you were here at this time. But in the summer of 2017, we set a record, which we have seemed to keep since then, for the driest summer in recorded Oregon history since, I think, the third driest summer in recorded Oregon history. And after a 83 consecutive run of days of no rain, a 15-year-old boy with his friends allegedly threw a smoking firecracker off a bridge in the woods to a dry ravine below. And what started was the Eagle Creek Fire in the summer of 2017. We remember this really well because the gorge was alit and there was smoke everywhere. I remember coming down the gorge at night not aware of this fire happening because I think we were away in Walla Walla and we came back and we saw just, just everything in smoke. It was horrendous. It was unbelievable. And later, I don't have the image, but there was an image that I saw online that showed the power of regret. Tears streaming down the young man's face as he got to witness before his very eyes the massive destruction of what seemed like a small action. And he said, he recorded in his testimony, I now realize how important it is to think before acting because my actions can have serious consequences. I think that's the understatement of the year. James says words are like a spark that can set a forest on fire. 
We can judge that young man, but the reality is we all have probably and can remember right now a time when our words were a spark that set a raging forest fire. Uh, we have lots of phrases about the power, the destructive power of words. I was just thinking of one, I was doing great, and then I opened my big mouth, right? We say things like, that guy's running his mouth. We, we have ways of communicating throughout all time. Humanity has been aware of the destructive power of words and the careless use of words. Sometimes this can be really comical. Megan and I have a funny back and forth where uh, I've been known to turn to Megan when she's been particularly twisted up in an explanation gone wrong. It's like verbally she's had a minor fender bender in the car in front of her and then she immediately just puts it in reverse and runs into the car behind her, right? And I just look it over and I just smile and I say, wow, I'm really enjoying this. I'm just waiting to see how you're gonna get yourself out of this one. We know how this is. It can be really funny what we do with our words. But it can also be really tragic. We had a case study in this at this year's Oscars as Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's alopecia. And we all know what happened, right? This was the water cooler talk of the next two months. The slap. And then after that, primetime went silent but I'm sure many of you have heard the uncensored version where Will Smith used his tongue to verbally slap Chris Rock over and over. James says the tongue can set the whole course of one's life on fire. We literally witnessed that happen on primetime TV. Proverbs says in, verse, in chapter 7, verse chapter 11, verse 17, your own soul is nourished when you are kind, but you destroy yourself when you are cruel. Just when we think we're finally getting our own way and justice and comeuppance because we get that retort and we realize it's only going to make things worse, especially when we do it to the people we love, especially when we do it in public. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So today I want to talk about the scary power of words. And then I want to talk about the source of words, the source of those same words, and the grace of God's word. Scary power of words, the source of those words, and the incredible grace of God's word. And there's a really important point to be made, which is that James encourages us to speak carefully, to speak integrity from a pure heart. That's, that's good advice. If you just took this passage and you read it, as many of the Proverbs are, you would get good behavioral modification. But that's not the good news of the gospel, is it? If we read the Bible as a moral handbook, as a law and a code of ethics for which we are to follow, that is not the good news. That's nice, but all that proves to us is that we can't follow the rules if we're really honest with ourselves. So that's not the good news of the gospel. We have all made mistakes like Will Smith. The only good news, 
And the only good news that can come for him is not a rule book that says this is how you act, but it is forgiveness. The only thing that can bring healing is forgiveness because we can't undo the past. So how do we get there? Let's talk this through. James is writing this, of course, as we know, this whole book, we've gone through this series, The Handbook for Wholeness, and he's writing to the church. His criticisms are always aimed at the church. And when he starts out this text in verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And then he goes on, we all stumble in many ways. So he's applying this to teachers and leaders, and he's including himself with them. He uses we language, which I think is really wonderful. I, th I thought of that image of Will Smith. I thought of that night, the Oscars. I thought of how many young people, especially young black men, were watching on the stage as their role model, the man who was going to go up and later accept an Oscar for a film about two amazing young black women athletes. This was a moment for pride, for dignity, and how much he was a leader and how disappointing it must have been for the entire black community, for their leader who was going to come up to fall so hard. So James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We need to take seriously our role. Now, here's, here's something that's important for all of us. You might say, great for Will Smith, right? Of course, he should have been conscious of the fact he's on television. So many people, what was he thinking? But we're all leaders. We are all, somebody is looking up to all of us. It may be our spouse. It may be our kids. It may be our colleagues. It may be our friends. So if you say, I'm not a leader, I'm not a teacher, yes, you are. And James is saying, we are all teachers of somebody. We are all leaders. Especially, he's pointing his finger, and he says, you in the early church, the beginning of this organization, as leaders, realize that so, as so goes the leader, so goes the church. Parents, we all know this, as so goes the parent, so goes your kids, right? We hear our kids repeating things that we say, I literally heard them repeat. I was pulling the batteries out of the, the mouse this morning because my kids watch shows while we're practicing, right? And every time, I kid you not, every time I go up there, somehow the wireless mouse and keyboard have run out of batteries on Sunday morning. They're always working every other day of the week, but on Sunday morning, they don't work. And I'm always rushing around and I go, these stupid wireless things, the batteries always run out. And I come back up later with the batteries and Ezra goes, these stupid mice with the batteries are always running out. And I was like, you picked that up so fast, right? You are just mimicking your leaders. James says, not many of you should become teachers. My There's almost like tongue in cheek. Remember, so goes the leader, so goes the follower. James is not here to judge, though. He says, we all stumble. So he is a model of what we should be as leaders. All of us as leaders are servant leaders. We're guides that include ourselves in the stumbling. Parents, if you don't do this, a regular thing in our household has been, man, I've had a lot of opportunities to repent. I don't ever remember, and maybe they did, but I don't remember my parents repenting to me. Repent to your kids. 
quickly, I'm sorry, I sinned. And model that behavior. Include yourself, lead them by serving and being an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and be completely formed by his grace. Jesus was the fullness of truth and grace. And I've thrown this image up a lot of these two words, truth and grace, because it has rattled me throughout the last few years. James here is showing a consistent pairing of God's character just in the way he's giving advice. He's saying, here's the truth. If If you listen to Noah read this, it sounded pretty intense, you know? The tongue is evil, right? Truth, truth, beware. Grace, we all stumble. Grace, I get it. I'm with you. I have one too, right? We make mistakes. To hold those two things in balance is what James is doing. And he uses a few different images. He uses the image of a bit in a horse's mouth. The bit, of course, is the metal part that goes right there in between the jaw that when you pull the bridle and pull the, um, I don't even know what they're called. Reins. Thank you, Ron. When you pull the reins, clearly I'm a horse rider. You steer the horse left to right by pulling on its jaw. This is what we do with a bit. The other image he uses is a rudder on a ship. If you can make it out there, there is a red rudder on the back of that massive ship. Why does it matter to have a bit or a rudder? Somebody, somebody answer that question. Why would it matter to have a rudder? Provides direction. Steers provides direction. James is saying, as the tongue leads, so the body follows. Not maybe how we typically think of it. As the tongue leads, so the body follows. Interestingly, the rudder is in the back of the ship, but it is steering the whole ship. He's talking about something here that's really interesting. He's talking about the power of our pride or our dignity. The tongue is a small part of the body, he says in verse 5, but it makes great boasts. What does that mean? Our tongue makes great claims. Then what do we have to do? I can climb that. I can go faster than you. And then what do we have to do? Back it up. Every man in this room knows this, right? We throw our words out. We lob our ego out into the middle, and then we say, oh, shoot, I've actually got to do it. And get yourself in big trouble. I remember uh, as probably a 15-year-old. I was never a great rock climber, but in high school I did a bunch of sport climbing. We had a wall in our gymnasium in our school. And then I, I did a few times where I went out on actual rock. And there's a huge difference between those holds that are all laid out for you in bright colors and like this is just a craggy rock face and I've got to figure out how to climb this thing. My brothers have always been better than me. It, it seems like everything. And they went with my cousins who are also just manly men. And we went out and I was going, yeah, I, I can be with the guys. I can, I can climb this. And we went to Monkey Face, which is uh, near Bend, uh, Smith Rock. I don't know. No one's, no one's a rock climber in here, I can tell. But at this time, I had thought, okay, yeah, I can, I can keep up, right? They string, one person lead climbs and takes the rope up and they string them through the holes. And I'm down below going, okay, we got this. I, all right. Said I could do this. I can do this. And I'm the last guy up. 
and I get about to the top of what is the first pitch. And then they get near that top part. He goes, you're going to have to pull the rope up behind you because we need it for the second pitch. And I go, wait a second. If you pull the, the rope, what if I need to like go back down? Oh, you can't. Like We're pulling that rope up for the next pitch. You're coming with us. My hands are getting tired. I'm getting sweaty. My heart's starting to beat really fast. And I was just like, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. I got to repel out, guys. Like, I, I, I felt like I chickened out. It was so shameful. But I am so glad. I am certain I would have died that day if I had taken that second pitch up. Like, my hands were already giving out after the first pitch. It was like, what did I get? What did my big mouth get me into? On the positive side, there is a positive side to our pride. God will use our pride, actually, as a motivator for us. Like, your bodies are all here today because you made a commitment. You may have made that commitment to God, but more than likely you're here as a motivator because you made that commitment to each other. You made a great claim, a great boast. I will wake up by 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. John, I will play the guitar for the worship band, and I will arrive for practice at a certain time. I make a claim. And then because of my own sense of dignity, my desire to avoid shame, my desire to back up my words and have integrity, good desires. The rudder steers the ship of my body that when the alarm went off for us this morning and we realized we overslept by 45 minutes, our tongues have now bound us to this claim and we got to go fast, right? So there's a positive side to this as well. I heard a friend say this week, he said, I forget what we were talking about. He says, if God only used good motivations to build his kingdom, he wouldn't be getting very much done. And I was like, that's a strange thing to say, but it's true. God uses all kinds of bad actors. He uses all kinds of sinful people. He uses all kinds of sinful motivations to get good things done, right? Paul said this, I don't really care so long as Christ is preached. It's good with me, right? We're building the kingdom. There's going to be some bad actors. God works with all of them. We pray for all of us to be reformed. But the reality is God's going to use our pride, our boasting, our great claims, our egos to get his work done. The tongue enables us to do extraordinary things. But a tongue without a bridle or a rudderless ship are at the whim of the desires of the horse, or in the case of the ship, they're at the whim of the desires of the wind and wherever it blows. So these are two actually very different images, but really helpful. Okay, think about a horse. What are the what are the urges of a wild animal? If our tongue is the bit that steers the body, what is he talking about? Our bodies themselves have urges, hungers, desires that our tongue can help steer. We can make commitments and promises to each other. We can make commitments before God in prayer. We can make commitments that bind our bodies and can steer us so that we don't just succumb to our wild urges and instincts. But in the case of the ship, that's a different image entirely. If our body is the ship and the rudder is steering it and the winds are what the rudder can keep us against, that means that the rudder, our tongue, is actually able to fight against the forces of the world. 
the winds of change, the things that are going to throw us off, losing a job, our city falling into looking like garbage in certain places, having higher crime rates. Those are things totally outside of our, those are not bodily urges. Those are things totally outside of our control, but the tongue can steer us through that. Though our sails may be filled with wherever the wind blows, the rudder can use that and steer through that energy. So then James moves and he talks about the pilot. He says, okay, the the tongue is the rudder, but who decides how the rudder is moving? He says that the tongue, that the pilot can, the very small rudder, in verse 4, that is used wherever the pilot, pilot wants to go. Okay? So our tongue is steered by something deeper. There is a source for our words. And they stem from our conscious desire. I don't know, was it Freud that had the id and the ego and the superego, right? The idea is we have urges. Life throws us curveballs. And then there is this part of us that rises above it, uses our rational mind, and we steer our life through whatever it throws at us. We steer our bodies through whatever they're feeling like to get to where our goals are, to get what we really want. Uh, In sailing, I don't know, I'm not super familiar with sailing, although someday I wish that I could do it. But I was reading about this idea with sailing called tacking. So if you're in a sailboat, easy to go down with. The wind's wind's blowing down the Columbia River Gorge, thrown this way. I want to sail today from Astoria to the Dalles. Easy if the wind's blowing in one direction. I just get my boat in an Astoria and I just hang out and let it blow my sails down to the gorge. Okay, well, then Megan calls and says, hey, come home. And I go, sorry, the wind's only blowing this direction. So I just, I can't until the wind turns around. No, there has to be a way when you're sailing to go upwind. So what you do is you use the rudder to turn yourself around and then you tack, you go at angles. You use the wind that's still blowing this way to take you this way and then this way and then this way. And you use the rudder to steer yourself upwind, tacking back and forth strategically to actually use the wind that's blowing in the same direction to take you in the opposite direction. This shows that our tongues, with that rudder, and our desire can take us where we want to go, even if it's upwind from where the world is blowing. We are in a time as a church right now where this is going to be very important for us, where we have to decide the wind is blowing in a certain direction. God's word can give me my rudder. How do I use the wind with God's word to tack and steer where God wants me to go? How do I be strategic? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for our family? How do we do this together? How do we tack? Because our words steer the ship. See, often 
We use our words, I'm guilty of this, often I use my words as if they're pretty disposable, as if there's an undo button, especially with certain people. Like, we, we, have, safe, we have places where we let our hair down, right? We have places where we loosen our tie, where it's like we, we had very deep control over our words. I'm controlling my words up here. And then I get in the car with Megan after church, and now my words become very disposable. Like there's a big undo button. Like I can just throw things out. We have, word, we have a phrase that we use a lot in our house called words in the wind, right? Which is that sometimes you just verbal, do verbal diarrhea, right? You just, it's just all out there. And the, the person you love is going to sort through that with you because they love you. But the reality is they're hearing every word you say. And there's no undo button on those words. And sometimes what comes out, what comes out is really ugly, ugly stuff. Now, they can, they can try to ignore you. They can try to treat as words in the wind. But the reality is sometimes that is toxic, what comes out. Every word counts, James says. You're always leading somebody. Even if I'm next to my most loving confidant, I'm still leading them, and they're leading me. Our words really matter. Often when Meg and I get in a situation where one or the other of us is doing that, we then put the other person in a position of using their words very carefully. One person is just verbally vomiting out, and the other person is going, okay, I wasn't expecting to have to do this right now, but this is like 911 emergency. I need to get Megan or John out of the spiral. So I now have to be the rudder for both our ships. I've taken this sailboat that the rudder's just blasted off the side of it or just thrown off, and I'm tethering it to myself, and now I'm using my rudder to steer us both. We've all been in this situation. James is saying, please don't do that. Please don't take your partner through that. Please don't take your family through that. Every word has influence. Don't be careless, even with private. In private, consider your words. Because our words, as troublesome as they can be, James focuses a lot on the words being evil, but as troublesome as they can be, they can be an incredible force of resistance against the chaotic winds and change of life. They can be an incredible force of resistance against the wild horse of our body. They can be powerful tools of hope and courage. And there is a lot to be said about something I've witnessed just this week in a wonderful way. There can be a lot to be said about righteous stubbornness. Righteous stubbornness. I am going to stubbornly plant my feet in the word of God. The word of God is going to come out of my mouth even when it doesn't make sense to me, to you, because you need it. And I'm going to be stubborn about it. I'm not going to let go of it. It's the only thing I can cling to right now. And so I literally have to tie my rudder to the word of God and steer wherever it's going to go, even if it looks like I'm going to the darkest, stormiest sea, upwind, that's what I'm going to do. But James says, if, you're, if you are not a righteously stubborn person, beware the words that come out of your mouth. Because your words make great boasts on behalf of your whole soul. Okay, we're talking about the source of the words, the pilot who's steering. Wherever I direct that rudder in that storm is telling you where I want to go. So when I come into a conversation with Megan and I literally throw the rudder off my boat, what am I telling her? I'm telling her I'm giving up, right? I'm telling her I don't have a plan, right? When we do that with each other, 
It is showing the other person we're talking with the desire, the target for our whole soul in that moment. And I think why James is zeroing in so much on words is that while actions can hold a lot of power too, words, because our bot, they lead our body, because those promises can direct so much of our life, they have a scary, scary power over the direction of your life. And I wanted to use this example for a second. Oh, I didn't get this slide up. That's okay. Um, access to guns, okay? America's interesting. The graph I had showed America versus basically every other country in the world. And America has four times the murders of a country like the UK, four times per capita. This is not because the UK is so much smaller. Per capita, America has four times the murders. Why is this? Well, throughout Europe, access to guns is basically impossible, right? Legally, you can't get a gun. You have to get it in the black market. It's hard, it's hard to get a gun in the UK. Why are there four times as many murders in the US? Boom. I'm upset. I have the power. One bullet, dead. James is saying the tongue is like a gun. The tongue is like a gun. It has that kind of power. Irreversible consequences can come with the tongue. A huge argument in gun control has just been that if you didn't have access to guns, you would lower those murders so far because it takes so much more to repeatedly hit somebody, or I'm not going to get really grotesque here, but it takes a lot more to kill somebody if you don't have access to a one-moment death. And, and something about the gun that to, to striking to me when I think about the tongue is it's not just a scary power, but as soon as you make that, that, that decision to pull that trigger, as soon as the words come out of your mouth, the power leaves your control. I, I imagine there are people that have fired that shot and a millisecond later have regretted it. Literally a millisecond later are like, what have I done? And that's how we are with our words. We don't even know what's in our heart and then we speak and it becomes apparent for everybody. He says, Words are scary powerful. They can leave your control. And sometimes they start things, as in the case of our forest fire in Eagle Creek, they start things that you can't stop. Now, sometimes this is actually intentional. People use words intentionally to do this. I think of Hitler in World War II and Joseph Goebbels, his chief propagandist. They constructed words. They used the power of words for the express purpose of them catching fire and building a movement of people that did some of the most horrible acts of evil in the entire world because of the seeding power of words that would just multiply like a fire, forest fire. But James is not looking at the Hitlers of the world, he's looking at the hypocrites of the world and that's what he shows in verses nine and 10. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Why does this happen in the church? Why is it that we don't even know what's in our heart until we open our mouth? 
Often our own heart is revealed for all to see, and we don't, we don't even know what's in there until it comes back to us. I had a, I had a story that I'll never forget. Uh, so I was opening our first film, Queen of the Sun, which was about the honeybee collapse. We are opening at the Hollywood Theater, and it, it was really hard. We did lots of grassroots work, work, uh, grass work to open it. Lots of organizations partnering. We were really trying to pack that theater out, right? Because if you sell it a theater, that's really good, and word of mouth, and all that stuff. Well, our wildest dreams came true, and it was a completely sold-out opening night. It was, it was what my, my friend Ryan says, you guys sold out hard, right? And I was just like so excited, right? It was like, I was 25, I was like, this is amazing, like this feels so good. And it went to my head, right? The first night, got up, we're just super excited. That was just like, you know, the glow, right? Then the second night we open, we're in, we're in a different theater and I go up front, I've still got kind of that swagger of like, man, this went really well. And filling out, I even know some people in the audience. We had a, a farmer come up to help introduce it with us. And I come up and I say, I'm so humbled you're all here tonight. And then I went on to talk about how we sold out hard the previous night. And I go, man, if some of you had to be turned away last night, I'm so sorry about that. But I'm so glad you came back. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just playing up how successful the film is and I'm really excited and this is so great. And this jovial farmer in his blue bib overalls and his big beard kind of looks at me and I go down and he takes the mic and he looked over at me and he goes, and then he just publicly embarrassed me. He was like sold out and they have to cut like who are, like it was, he just ripped me a new one. And I was so embarrassed because I realized I'm coming up here like my film is serving the greater good. I'm serving all of you. And actually, what I realized is I was indicating you're all serving me, right? Good thing. Sorry you guys got turned out, but I'm glad you're back for me. We don't realize sometimes what's in our heart until the words come out of our mouth. And other people have to tell us. Other people say, man, you're always talking about that. What are you, what are you thinking about? What do you want? James says, we are hypocrites. Out of our tongues, we praise the Lord our Father. I'm so humbled. And then, it, we used, we, and then with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. What is underneath our words? Sometimes on the surface is indicated behavior that there's problems under the hood. In some way up there that night, I had indicated that I actually felt that I was superior to my neighbors, that I actually was loving the spotlight, that I was not humble at all. This doesn't need a whole lot of explanation that words come from, that they come from our heart, that they come from the source of our desires. Matthew 12, verses 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Using the King James. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And then he talks in, in verses 7 and 8. He says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame 
the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So if we harbor anger deep down in our heart all day long, you might have a lot of self-control, but at some point that untamed evil is going to come out. The tongue will act out of its nature. He talks about a tree that grows figs, can't bear olives. The tree will grow fruit out of its nature. He talks about a spring that has fresh water, can both fr- that, sorry, that has salt water flowing it from, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? So it's out of the abundance of our heart sometimes that we write an email, that we send a text message, that we quit back at a clerk or a waitress or somebody on call support. It's out of the abundance of our heart sometimes that we talk to our friends and our kids. The way we communicate, the way we do everything acts out of who we are and how we're living and the voices that are traveling through our head over and over again. If you're constantly shaming yourself, then you're probably going to be more likely to shame other people. How do we deal with the untamable heart? If the pilot, if as a pilot, I can't control myself in the rudder, how is the ship ever going to go where I want it to go? This is kind of what James is getting at. The tongue is, un, the tongue is untamable. It's a restless evil. We're hypocrites. We, James, the apostle writing, we praise the Lord our Father, and then we curse human beings. Proverbs, again, in chapter 16, verse 25, says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Seems right to us. I stood up on that opening and it seemed right. I even pre-scripted and thought it through and go, that's how I'm going to open tonight. It seemed right to me. But I was, I was made fun of. Rightly. It led to death. Proverbs 16 probably led Jeremiah to write his, his, in his work, in chapter 17, verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful. We know this verse. The heart is deceitful, what? Above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? We don't even know our heart. Our heart deceives ourselves. So this is a great challenge for us. This shows us that we can't just focus on behavior modification. When we read James and we go, okay, John said, what, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. That's good. That's good. Behavior modification, that's good stuff. Doesn't change my heart. I can be really slow to speak and really quick to listen and really slow to anger and just get angry a lot slower. And then, bleh, it all still comes out. Those are like, those are deterrents to help you check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Those are deterrents to go, okay, this, okay, I need to be slow. Okay, I can't get angry. Oh, that's what that feeling is. Yuck. My heart's really gross. Now what? Now what? The heart is, the, I can't even trust where my heart is. It might be all over the place. 
What do I do with my untamable heart? What do I do with my hypocritical language? What do I do with the fact that I can't even know myself? This is why we desperately need the grace of God's word. So words are, are scary powerful. But the amazing thing is when we realize how deeply powerful words are, we can realize how amazingly powerful God's word is. Think of how powerful your words are and how they can direct a life. Now think of God using his words and how they have directed all of history and all of creation. Think about the amazing grace of God's word. There's something in biblical studies called a speech act. Here's what a speech act is, okay? When I talk and I say, let there be light, and this sanctuary is dark, it'll still be dark after I say, let there be light. Let there be light, nothing's going to change. I have to go over and flip the light switch for something to change, right? For there to be light in the room. But what happens when God says, let there be light? What happens? There's light. God doesn't have to flip a switch after he says, let there be light. Very simple illustration. Lock that one in deep. When God says something, it is. When we something, we then have to go deliver. We make great claims. Now I have to go follow up my claim by walking over and flipping on the light switch for there to be light for all of you. We treat God as if his words are like ours, as if he says it, but then I can't trust whether it will actually happen or not, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you and not to curse you. We go, okay, um, I, I don't know if you're going to do that because I say that kind of stuff to people just to get them off my back. I, I say that stuff to people to dangle the carrot to motivate them to go do something. So I think you're doing the same thing. No, God says, my speech acts are one thing. I don't say it and then have to go do it. When I say it, it's done. This is profound. This is profound. If we read the Bible with God's speech act as being one and the same thing, completely trustworthy, it will change everything about how we take in the word of God. I'm actually glad our speech acts aren't one and the same, right? Because then if you, in the pits of despair, just say, I just want to die, well, then I'd be dead. That's not good. God says, I don't want your speech acts to be the same thing. You're not ready for that yet. You're not fully integrated. You're not fully righteous. But mine, my acts are one and the same. So there is no hypocrisy in God if he says it. It's true. And his words are words of grace. In that case in the, in the gorge with the 15-year-old, the verdict was that there would be $36.6 million of restitution for the damages done. Imagine. Just, just imagine yourself as a 15-year-old. <laughs> I read this guy was a part of the Ukrainian community, went to a Pentecostal community church. Like, this is just, we know this kid. We were this kid. Got with a group of friends, got up there, not thinking about anything, throwing a firework off. 36 point, that would be like, my life is over. My life is literally over. Just doom and despair, like this can't be happening, super surreal, right? 
And the judge implemented that really. That is the actual amount of fees for restitution. But then wrote this. And after 10 years, if the boy successfully completes probation, doesn't commit additional offenses, and complies with the payment plans, the court can grant full or partial satisfaction of the restitution judgment. Well, what's that? That's, that's a form of grace. After 10 years, we'll just let it go. He's not going to be able to pay $36 million in 10 years. No way. Whatever can be paid, the time that can be put in, fine. That is a form of grace. Okay? That's a human form of grace. Now, my question is, does that ruling change the 15-year-old boy who lit the gorge on fire? Does the ruling change him? Does grace change him? If he has that ruling, is he now fundamentally changed? No, he, he could go do it again. He could go that very day and go, well, I guess it's all over anyways. Just throw another one off, right? My life's basically over. He could be totally self-destructive. Grace doesn't happen to us. Grace happens for us. We have a part to play in grace. There's a story, kind of a legend probably, about Abraham Lincoln, told by the poet Robert Bly. And it says, a mother once got into the White House and woke Lincoln up at five in the morning, saying that her son had been sent by train to Washington a few days before, had been assigned to guard duty on arriving, had no sleep, and now is going to be shot at eight that morning. Now Lincoln could have done a few different things. He could have shouted at the guards, who let this woman in here? Get her out of here. He might have said, Madam, we all have to obey the rules. Your son didn't obey the rules, and I feel just about it bad as just about as bad about it as you do, but I can't intervene. But he didn't say any of those things. This was late stage of his life, and he was in a stage full of wisdom. He says, Well, I guess shooting him wouldn't help him much. And he signed a piece of paper pardoning the boy. It's a little closer, I think, to the way our Father looks at us. Grace is for us. His word is to motivate us, to put us in a place where we realize, oh, I have a chance, I have an opportunity, despite myself, I have been set free, we say. So we should be thankful for the tremendous power of God's word. Without the words of that court verdict, without the words of Lincoln, what would have happened? 36 million in restitution, no caveats. Well, that's just the law. Lincoln could have said, why are you even in my room? Get out of here and just dismiss the whole thing and the guy gets sent to his death. It is because of God's actual words that we are pardoned. His words and actions connected to each other perfectly. Have you ever been in a terrible argument and you're sitting in that space, often it's a space of silence, where you're just looking at the other person. You, you know everything's burned down already. You guys have had it out. And you're just waiting, hoping desperately, knowing you've completely dug yourself in your own grave. Maybe the other person's sitting there knowing they've done the same thing. But there is something that can change the argument still. 
in that silent space, there's still something. Each person has a part to play to change the argument. Usually, it's the offended person that has all the power. So if I'm here verbally attacking and just digging myself in my own grave, thinking I'm, I don't even know my heart, blah, it all comes out, and now you're like, I feel attacked. You've wronged me. And it's actually abundantly clear. Then I go, I have wronged you. Then I get really quiet. You get really quiet. Who now has the power to forgive? And what are they, how are they going to do that? With a word. One word can change the direction of a whole argument, a whole conversation. And it is the word from the offended party. God's word sets us free. God may say something like this, church, you're not jerks, but you're acting like jerks. That in and of itself frees us. We are not our sin, but we are acting in sin. And then he will always say, even when he says that, he's saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Can we practice being like God in the way that he uses his words, in the way we use our words with each other? Can we practice that kind of grace? John Piper talks about the book of Proverbs, and I thought this was really helpful. He says, the book of Proverbs, which James is very similar to, is in ways a lesson on talk. I would summarize it this way, he writes, words give life, words bring death. You choose. What does this mean? It means you have never spoken a neutral word in your life. Your words have direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they will be words of encouragement, hope, love, peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. But if your words are moving in the death direction, they will be words of anger, malice, jealousy, slander, gossip, division, contempt, racism, violence, judgment, and condemnation. Every word we use has direction to it. So choose our words carefully. Maybe pay attention to the person who uses his words for life, who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray.